Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Cries and whispers is over. It's early Monday morning, and I am in pain. 
Would you mind listening to me for a little while? Only a moment. I just want to tell you that I have made a film for you. Perhaps just for you. I wrote a screenplay about four women who met for a few days in dramatic circumstances. I asked four magnificent, wonderful actresses who are my friends to play the four parts. Harriet Andersson, Ingrid Thulin, Kari Sylvan, and Liv Ullmann. I asked my friend Sven Nyqvist to do the camera work as usual. I asked the rest of my colleagues to come once more to my aid. We found an old manor house in a silent park. For 40 days, we were making a film which we liked. It is called Whispers and Cries. If you ask me whether it is a good or a bad film, I don't know. All I know is that it is a film dear to my heart. That is why I asked you to see it. I want you to like it. Andy Nelson, uh, welcome to the next reel. It's good to have you here. <laughs> nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. If others wanted to join us on the next reel and see uh, what's going on in our social universe, and I only ask because of the two of us, one of us has gone crazy with social media, where would they go? You know, the best place, I, I'm glad you asked, Pete. The best place <laughs> for people to go is to check out our Instagram page, which is uh, Instagram. Uh, we are the next reel over at Instagram. You can check out, we're doing a lot of posts over there, um, a lot of posts about the movie we're talking about each week, and a lot of other posts that are, uh, you know, from other hosts doing picks of the week for movies to watch. And uh, we're talking about our, what we're what's going on over in our Discord chat room, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of stuff uh, over there. There's so, so if you had much, to, There's so much stuff. There's lots. So Instagram's a great place. If you want to get in on the conversation, head to Discord. So what people need to do is just head over to thenextreel.com. They can find all of our socials because we're also on Facebook and Twitter. They can check us out there. And Pinterest, where we post all of the movie posters of the movies we're talking about. And jump into our Discord chat room where they can get in on the conversation uh, with all of our other wonderful listeners. All right, Andy, here we are. We're talking about our uh, Best Picture nominees that are also foreign language films. Mm. Oh, yes, we we're, are. We're deep in it now. We're in the in the Swedish uh, period. <laughs> the seventies <laughs> is also known as the Swedish the Swedish years. The Swedish years, because <laughs> because effectively, while the last movie that we talked about uh, was Z, great, correct, nineteen sixty nine. We have a skip, and the skip is because we did the movie already, and that was the immigrants. Correct. We covered the emigrants uh, in our listeners, one of our listeners choice episodes. And that was, mm -hmm. it was nominated for best foreign language film in 1972 mm -hmm. or sorry, the 1971 um, Academy Awards. And in 1972, it was nominated for best picture, which is interesting because its sequel, The New Land, was nominated that same year for best foreign language film. So. Anyway, so they really had their house in order, is what we're saying. <laughs> Everything was really tight. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, so, the, so the Swedes really got in uh, in the early 70s in the Oscars, because uh, now we're talking about 1973, when Ingmar Bergman's film Cries and Whispers was nominated for Best Picture. 
Cries and whispers, Andy. Uh, IMDb says that this is a story of a woman dying of cancer in early 20th century Sweden, and she's visited by her two sisters, uh, and as a result, long repressed feelings between the siblings rise to the surface. Nailed it, IMDb. (laughs) Nailed it. And with that, I think we're done. Uh, So join us next week. Uh, I I tried to go, I tried to leave our conversation last week when we were talking about coming attractions. I tried to leave with a sense of optimism, and um, you countered my sense of optimism with a question. Uh, when I said I'm I'm looking forward to this, you asked, "Are you?" and <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I I realize now that I wasn't. This was a tough watch. Ingmar Bergman makes films that I think are for a particular audience. I yeah. I have a, I struggle personally with Ingmar Bergman films. I generally find his films very interesting, very artfully put together, but often very uh, uh, there is there is a barrier between his films and me. I feel like he <laughs> is making me. his film. I, I feel like he's making his films very specifically for an audience that likes to kind of really just dig into every little shot and every little nook and cranny and really just go to town analyzing it. Like it feels, and I don't know if this is fair to say, but it feels like when you say Ingmar Bergman, I think I think that his films to a certain extent fit the profile of what so often is spoofed as being a foreign film when you look at kind of Americans saying it's a foreign film, you know, kind of just like long shots of somebody in emotional anguish cutting to, you know, for just strange objects or whatever, you know, it just, it feels very much like an art film. And I I think there is an incredible amount of art in Ingmar Bergman's films. Uh, It's just, it's, it's hard for me to, find a connection to any of them that I have seen. And I've seen, I don't know, maybe half a dozen of them now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think this one was a tough one, and I am perplexed by this movie because uh, I I find of the Bergman films that I have seen, and I am far from a Bergman scholar, and I'm not a completionist by any stretch, uh, I find this movie is a simple movie of Bergman's. And so... I find it perplexing that it was so popular at the time. And uh, we'll talk about the extent of its popularity later. Uh, But the simplicity of it, what is on the screen is what is on the screen, right? There is little for me, I feel like, to dig into in terms of the the symbolism of these relationships. This is a relationships, uh, just a, 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 a catalog of relationships of great pain. It is a story of death and dying and how people, because of their respective relationships, deal with death and dying and grief and, and literal pain and suffering. And uh and and it all takes place in a red room in a red house with red fabric and red everywhere <laughs> so like for for me it is it is naked in its simplicity and so there is not much to there, there's not much else to talk about so let us say for table stakes that this movie is not made for me as it is not made for you and that's we'll put that aside and i'm going to approach the movie as if it was actually made for me <laughs> 
and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> you know, I feel like maybe uh, Eiffel 65 missed a chance to really liven things up with this film. Instead of blue Daba D, they should have done red Daba D. And it could have been red all about Daba Dead. <laughs> Daba Dead. It could have been all about this particular. Film. Yeah, yeah. Well, because it's interesting. <laughs> I, I think you know, and and uh, this is we're far from the first to say this, but but Bergman uses his his filmmaking as a form of therapy. It's cinema therapy, right? I mean, this is a guy who's a, a lifelong uh, agnostic, and he's exploring the constraints of faith through pain on screen. Uh, there, there was a, a period where he claimed that. In answering an interviewer's question that, yes, all of the women in the film, uh, they're a composite of my mother. And then later he says, oh, yes, I was lying. I just needed something to say. It's not my mother. The guy is clearly working through something. But I think and that's what I think is so interesting about Bergman, because not only does he say that, that, yeah, I was lying. I just needed to say something. But it clearly became something that was a big sign of pain for him at that point in his life, because then he's just like, I have lived with the anguish of the fact that I said that for years now. And it's like, (laughs) wow, he like. He really takes things to a deep emotional core when he when he's kind of dealing with his own emotions about things. Truly, truly. This is a guy who feels deeply. That is absolutely true. Uh, I want to go back to that to finish that quote, because I I realized I put the whole thing in here for a reason. Uh, That was a lie for the media. It was a spontaneous and careless remark. It was to haunt me since then. uh, Since then, it has always been linked to the film. Some stupid remarks one makes tend to live a life of their own. It was a lie. I said it in order to have something to say. It's very hard this is the important part. It's very hard to say anything about cries and whispers, uh, Bergman said in the documentary Bergman and the Cinema. It is very hard to say anything <laughs> about cries and whispers, Andy. And I guess that's where I feel like we should start our conversation about cries and whispers. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Uh, it, it, but I, and I think that you said a couple things that were pretty interesting. And one is that it's it, it's fairly simple as far as what the story is. There's there's not a lot. You have these sisters in this house, uh, three sisters. One of them is dying, and then there's the the maid who's been there for years, and then the sister di- sister dies, and then they just kind of deal with their emotional turmoil. And then they fire the maid and leave. And that's basically the story when you look at kind of what the context of the story is. But within that, we've got strange flashbacks and memories of like horribly just repressive acts being done by people in the film. Like Maria, her husband is apparently so distraught that I'm assuming and this is this is. I think the thing with Bergman is you have to read a lot of stuff into this. Like you talked about even just IMDb saying when a woman dying of cancer, uh, it's never said what she's no, dying that's of right. in the film. The film never specifically says. It's just she's dying of something. The doctor comes, seems to kind of examine her, Although, her interestingly, kind of stomach in, area. In the write-ups, it is it's everybody always, seems to have interpreted it that it's uterine cancer, not even just cancer, right. uterine cancer. Where in the film do we get that? Exactly. And I'm assuming it's those few moments when the doctor comes, he kind of puts her hand, his hand on her belly just to kind of examine something. And that's it. And I'm like, okay, yeah. so that I guess everyone interprets as uterine cancer. It, well, right? and it does make me wonder if it's lost in translation, though. I mean, there is there is reasonable doubt here. Like, and I, I wonder if our Swedish uh, listeners can tell us: is this just 
you know, uh, lost in the subtitles. Like, so do they actually say it in, in Swedish, Swedish somewhere? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. It's entirely possible. We're basing yeah. it off of whatever. I, I watched the Criterion version of this, and usually they're pretty pretty good with things like that. I yeah. would think that if if they're talking about uterine cancer, that would actually come through in the subtitles. Right. Um, but you never know. Regardless, it's like those sorts of things aren't specifically said when we have Maria dealing with this memory of. You know, she's with this doctor that she apparently, I, I think, had had an affair with, although they never really seem to, he never really seems to like her. So it's kind of odd. But apparently, Maria's husband is, I'm assuming, in so much anguish over the fact of all of this that he goes into the other room and stabs himself. And apparently, it's not fatal. We never really find out, but he's alive later. So I'm guessing mm-hmm. it's, he's fine. Um, and then we have uh, Karen. The other sister, who is living a life of such despair with her husband, who's a jerk, and she seems to be just, I don't know what happened to her. We never really get kind of the flashback to her youth, like what happened to her as a kid, that she hates it when people touch her, but she apparently either hates the idea that her husband never touches her or doesn't ever want him to touch her, that he takes she takes a piece of glass to her own uh, vagina and mutilates herself. Mm-hmm. as a way to say, nope, you're not getting this. It's like, what? It's like some horrifying flashbacks of these things. And it's like, I, I, I struggle trying to figure out what is, and this is this is the interesting thing, because it's a fairly simple story, but there's a lot of more kind of complex emotional things that clearly Bergman is exploring with these sorts of elements in the story that makes for, I, I guess, the... Uh, the film critics and analysts to just go crazy uh, coming up with theories as to what what all of this is happening. Yeah, and and they go crazy. I mean, th- film theorists are all over the place in in trying to determine what these things mean and the psychological background of of sort of what these each of these sisters is doing and, and how it relates to their relationship with one another. And I I think there is there's you know there's something to that. Uh, I, but I I, I do want to just lob in uh, the uh, Anna, the the nursemaid, who is the only one to get out of here as I, I mean, she's she's sort of the she's the more spiritual one. She's the the one of faith. Uh, she is the one who the only one of the family story that truly appears to love Agnes, who is dying. Uh, and in the end, she is the one who is ultimately crapped all over, right? They they don't <laughs> right. they don't end up giving her what she what she ultimately needs. She says, "I don't want anything," but at the end, the only joy that she gets is is that she ended up, you know, stealing Agnes's diary and and reading stories of Agnes's once joy uh, has uh, has given her something. I think of of her own joy in the end, which is something. I guess, but but taking the faithful person and 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 demonstrating everyone else uh, uh, sort of having taken advantage of her and leaving her with nothing, I think is a statement that is a kind of uh, 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 it's a statement that is none too clear uh, in the hands of of Bergman's uh, filmmaking here about how he's struggling with his own relationship to faith and what it means. Well, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the relationship with faith, I mean, that's a really interesting element because after Agnes dies, the priest comes to deliver his uh, his 
message over her bedside before dealing with the funeral and everything. And in the as he finishes that up, he says to the sisters, she was she her level of faith was so much greater than my own or something like yeah. that. And it's like, yes. wow, OK, <laughs> what are you saying about yourself there? Uh, father Padre, right? It's, it's it's interesting that uh, that that's kind of how that is viewed, and uh, yeah. So I I I just don't know, and I guess it's just the nature of Bergman is that he 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 layers in enough elements of the story to kind of kind of have to force you to guess as to all of these other things that that are going on with it. And I, I guess the, the joy is, how deep do you want to dig in these stories when it's a, a story of such pain and anguish and such just emotional, kind of raw, um, kind of struggle? And it, it, that seems to be, for me, what I generally find in Bergman's films is there's this just it's a big emotional struggle and we get that in this film as as they're dealing with the death of Agnes and kind of what it means to have to deal with somebody who's going through the act of death which is very difficult for anyone who's done it and then after she's died which is about halfway through the film dealing with their own relationships and watching the relationship of Maria and Karen as they kind of try to figure out, you know, do they have much of a relationship? Why, what is, what does that mean? And then kind of seeing that all kind of, I, I guess, fall apart again by the end. It's, it's very Bergman. And I mean, we've only covered one other Bergman film on the show, which was Autumn Sonata in our in- Ingrid Bergman series. And yeah. that also, I, I just felt it was such an interesting pair to have discussed on the show because that also has kind of that third act, middle of the night, emotional, like raw conversation that they have <laughs> before leading to the end of the film. <laughs> I just, I, okay. I, it absolutely is. I, I think all of the things that you just described uh, are symbolically connected to the color red. And I, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the color red and the production design because I think it is, it is connected to Bergman and his constant choices. It is also a divergence for him in this film. He says, uh, when talking about the color red, I think of this as the inside of, of, I think of the inside of the human soul as a membranous red. All of my films can be thought of in terms of black and white, except Cries and Whispers. Uh, And this is a, a note on how all of the women are clad in white until the death, right? As you say and then it's all black right they're all in black after the death of of agnes uh he is this using this red as a symbol right of of rage and grief and sadness and denial uh and uh particularly the sisterly relationship and that weird turnabout between maria and karen how they they struggle to come to grips with one another and then absolutely come to grips with one another over the course of about 10 minutes, I think is a, is a really interesting, interesting turn. And, um, and they all do it in just drenched in this, uh, uh, this just blood red, uh, of the film. It's interesting that you say that because I, I think that 
it's such an interesting color because there's also kind of the passion that Maria has when she's with the doctor. Like it yeah. kind of the red flashes of her to her memories of her time with the with the doctor, but also red flashing back to the memories of her husband stabbing himself. You have the red flashbacks of Anna, the maid, as she is remembering her own daughter who died. And mm-hmm. that's never really explored. Like, did she have a husband? I don't really know. He's obviously not not in the picture now, so she's just got this infant that's dead. And so kind of the red of that life. And then Karen, when she kind of stabs herself in her crotch and, yeah. and smears the blood on her face, and it's just kind of like the the red of of being a woman, kind of the menstrual red, and how she's almost like kind of taking that out and just like denying that in some way. And it's just like denying womanhood. It's the red can be interpreted in so many different ways. And I don't think we've talked about this much red since, uh, you know, raise the red lantern and, and, uh, judo. when we're talking about Zhang Yimou and the way he uses colors. And it's, I think there's a lot of intensity to the red here and just like being buried, just like in this, just field of red for the duration of film i just i i find it to be so enveloping and it does make you feel like you're almost like inside a womb with these women yeah. for the duration of the film well i find it, it the the thing that i struggle with is is that there is so much red and red used in so many different ways in the film right it is it's a color that is carrying so much symbolic weight for bergman that i find myself exhausted by it right it's it it becomes an unsubtle knife and uh and i think that is uh to the film's detriment Right. That he has so overwhelmed every frame with this color uh, and he has asked it to do so much in every relationship, in every sort of uh, vile twist of humanity, whether the the attempted suicide uh, or the genital manipulation or the death of uh, of Agnes. Ultimately, like Red plays such a heavy player in this in in every relationship that it ultimately becomes neutered right i i i i loses it ends up losing weight for me and um and becomes um kind of uh, wasted by the end i'm i'm exhausted by it more than i'm uh, sort of in tune with it well, and I, I, you know, I think that that's okay. I think a few things to say there. That's interesting because one, I think anyone who is an essayist or a critic or an analyst who loves digging into this stuff would disagree with you because it gives them so much rich fodder to write about and to think about in context of all the stuff Bergman is potentially saying here. But at the same time, like I'm kind of with you. It's like there's there's so many ways to read all of this and Bergman isn't giving a lot of uh, information as to how he's wanting it to be interpreted. So it, I, I guess I end up seeing it. I don't get overwhelmed by it and kind of tire of it. I actually think it's just beautiful. Like the film is just stunning to look at. It's just the way that it's composed, the way that Sven Nickvist worked the, the film stock at the time, which was very difficult to capture red. I mean, even into the nineties, it red has been a very difficult color to capture well because of the way that it can overwhelm what the film is reading. And so they, I mean, just as a side note, he really had to go through and plan out not just the walls, but the color, the white colors, like the tone of white that the, the women would be wearing, the makeup that they would have on their face and how 
how the makeup would kind of work with their skin to kind of pair with the red, the color of their hair, like everything had to be kind of toned just right in order for the red to not just kind of bleed in an explosive sort of way. Really interesting. Um, well, but and just, to your point, I am much more interested in in uh, Spin Nyquist's work here and Bourgeulund uh, on the makeup because that is like, th- this is so much more of a production design challenge and a cinematographic yeah. challenge uh, that uh, it was uh, overcome here by choosing to just drench every frame in a paralyzing amount of red. Uh, I find that part fascinating. I, I love it. I mean, yeah, and, the, and Marek Voslund, uh, production design, like all of that, the way that it comes together in this world, I just am, am just astounded. It's just beautiful to watch. And the way that Bergman uh, composes the shots uh, with Nick Vist, I mean, it's just, it, everything yeah. works exceptionally for me. But yeah, I think largely, I guess, circling around, back around to my point, I do find by the time I get through all of the thinking about all of that is like, you know, it's like, there's just so many ways to interpret this, but that it does, it becomes tiring because it's just, it's, it's unending the different interpretations that you can read and you can just go through even just the short number of uh, comments that Wikipedia talks about, about the varying uh, ways that uh, people interpret the stuff within the film. And you can see right there that, you know, there's a lot of psychoanalytics about what the color red means. What's this saying? What's that saying? And I think to a certain extent, it's like, you know, is it saying that much or are we going back to what Bergman said that it's very hard to say anything about Cries and Whispers. Yeah, I, I think that's that's it. I mean, I, I uh, of course, the, the analysts and theorists and, and the, the people who just love kind of diving into and, and perhaps I would say creating puzzles that don't exist uh, or, or, you know, it's fun. It's fun. And, and yeah. I am I certainly there are properties that I find, uh, uh, you know, a great I have a great time like digging into these things. I mean, give me uh, give me three hours with, um, you know, death of a salesman. Right. I, I just uh, that's a property I adore and it speaks to me. This is one that that really doesn't. Uh, and, and I find what's on screen to me is what's on screen. I don't find Bergman's use of red to be particularly instructive of interpretation because there's so much of it. I think the the filmmakers who do, do a, a better job of demonstrating uh, story and intention with color are those who are able to use it in a way that leads me through the story and through interpretation by blanketing us with one color it tells one story and i i don't think it does it in a way that that um that is insightful in in, in this film i think it's a blunt instrument it's interesting that there aren't that many films that i can think of that use color so explosively where it's just so intense Speaking to the color red, I mean, obviously, I mentioned a couple of Zhang Yimou films, but uh, most recently, Guillermo del Toro did uh, that horror, that kind of that gothic horror film mm-hmm. of his that also had a lot of red, although there was a much more intentional reason why. Um, however, it's it's interesting that it is, uh, it's very bold. And when you're going to use that much, I mean, you're making a very bold statement with the look of the project. And I guess that's what I find interesting about this film is even if I 
uh, am less interested in kind of the ways that can be read. I do really appreciate the fact that he made something that is so bold and unique looking because you just don't see. I mean, I have never walked into a room that is fully red. <laughs> you know, it's like no. not many people do that as they're decorating uh, options. It's a pretty, it's a pretty. Uh, uh, big way to kind of make statements. And I guess it was a, a castle, the Taxinga Naspi castle mm-hmm. in Sweden, which was under renovation at the time. And so they had liberties to paint however they wanted to. And so, of course, they fully, <laughs> fully took that option up with mm-hmm. uh, putting this particular film together. Well, I was looking at some other films that I like and and am able to really sort of associate with with color and even films that I some films I love, some films I don't love, some films we talked about. Right. I mean, The Red Shoes is one of those uh, movies that I think is worth dropping in here as a film that has a more intentional use, an insightful use of color. Uh, Vertigo is another movie. I mean, you want to talk about the way color is woven into the story, uh, I, I think is a, is is incredible. The Last Emperor, we, we haven't talked about, but that's another one that's just dramatic, incredible use of color uh, to to drive narrative. Um, it, it's not that it's it's not possible to do it. It's that Bergman uses it like a brick. And uh, I, I, I find it sort of emotionally exhausting. It's a movie that's only an hour and a half long. And it feels like it took most of the day out of my life. Well, and I think, you know, leaving the color aside, I think that that just that's Bergman, right? I mean, this is a heavy, heavy film. It feels like a play because it really Mm -hmm. is. And I mean, it was made into a play, which we'll bring up at some point. But the whole idea of just these three sisters and the maid, you know, for the duration, pretty much. And it's just conversation, conversation, conversation. It feels very much like an emotional uh, hour and a half roller coaster is what we're in for with this one, and that's well, you know, that's curious because this is Bergman on Bergman's website, right? The website in his name. Uh, this title is subtitled "A Chamber Play in Red About D- a Dying Woman and Her Sisters." Um, I, you know, oh. it's it's a telling and obvious subtitle. I don't know if that was the official subtitle or if that was something that sort of came later, but it it strikes me as uh, appropriate and maybe a better way to sell the film uh, for those who haven't seen it yet. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, it feels very much just like the sort of heavy play that you would go watch. You know, just yeah. it has that feel. And, it, you know, it's interesting because he got the title itself from a piece of music. or Sorry, from a critic who said something about a piece of music happened to be Mozart. And he said that his music sounds like Cries and Whispers. <laughs> yeah. And well, have you listened to the track? It's it's Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 14 in E flat major. I have not. Uh, or maybe I've is, heard it. I just didn't listen to it before we started recording. It doesn't sound anything like Cries and Whispers to me. I mean, it's a Mozart piano concerto. And so there's this sort of give and take between the, uh, you know, the piano and the rest of the uh, small uh, ensemble. But it is a, it's a bizarre way to interpret music that is energetic. And uh, it is a minor. It's in minor. So it has this sort of uh, melancholiness to it, but it is an energetic melancholy. It doesn't sound like something that just feels uh, quite I, I found it a strange way to interpret. Again, I wonder what is lost in the Swedish translation to English. 
Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. But what I also found interesting is in listening to Bergman talk about titling the film is that, I, I don't know, perhaps I could say, like the color red, he latched onto the name because he's like, oh, you know, I, I read that that critic said that about that piece of music, and it just felt right. It just felt like an interesting way to describe the film. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, like the way that he... I feel like he's a very emotional, he attaches himself very emotionally to things like using the color red, which was just a thought. It was like a dream that he had had of seeing four women in white in a room of red. And that was yeah. like basically all it was that kind of gave him the idea to make this, to come up with this story. And same thing with the title is like he said that and it just sounded like, yeah, I feel like there's cries and whispers. And I feel like he emotionally attaches him to himself, to to these properties of his and then these all these people come along trying to kind of pull all sorts of stuff out of it that may not be accurate and maybe it's just you know what he just had this vision of red and it just it felt like it felt right you know and he's just kind of going off of that and i i feel like it's hard to kind of dig too deep in some of this stuff because it's like i don't know if he was digging that deep i think he just went off of the raw emotional uh, gut reaction to things for crying out loud, man, you for weeks have had a Zoom background from Grand Budapest Hotel. If Wes Anderson isn't more incisive with his use of color, I don't know how to have this conversation. Like this is <laughs> I, I feel like uh, uh, there, there are so many great ways to use color. And I feel like we're lobbing interpretation for the joy of interpretation on Bergman that is undeserved. I, this may be another in the list of uh, Pete's you know, movies like 2001, <laughs> I, it, fine. But I find, I, I find like digging into his motivations for color and, and I, I just, I don't have it. I don't have yeah. the will for it. That's what I'm saying. Let's, let's move past that because yeah. I don't think he dug that deep. I don't think he cares. That's what I'm saying. I think, I think it's dramatic. I think he liked the look of it. It yeah. was like a really cool, haunting well, look to tell a story like this. Totally. And, uh, and, and to your, to, to just round out your story, a part that I find interesting is that that conversation that he had was with his cinematographer. And, and he said, Hey, I have this vision of four women in white in a red, all red, everything red, do you think we could make a movie out of it? Yeah. And the cinematographer says, yeah, I think we could, I think we could do that. He says, okay, I'll, I'll give you a script in two months. Yeah. And there they were. That's how, it, that's it. That's what we right. have to work with. I, I really like what he did with the film. I think that this is a story about death and dying and emotional raw energy. Yeah, I think red is a really interesting way to kind of explore that. But I just don't think you need to dig deep into like all these meanings i think that sure maybe you can read all that in there but you know i don't know i just i, I struggle trying to put too much weight into any of these particular things even if they are there i just you know everyone's going to interpret something differently because bergman is not expressively saying this is because of this this is because yeah. of that right right well, it's fine it's fine make it a it game fine. that's fine but i just want to ask you this one question mm. Guilt and grief, uh, suicide attempts, uh, death of uterine cancer. Um, well, I'll just say death, uh, horrible death. We don't know from what's on screen <laughs> right. why. Uh, we look at uh, betrayal of uh, those who are who we employ to care for us. Um, uh, we look at uh, lampooning of faith. Uh, all of these things we have on screen. Uh, do did do you have anything in here? 
to love, like to to really enjoy <laughs> in your experience of watching the movie? I it's hard to for me hard to feel I saying the word love in context of the stories that Bergman put puts forth like i love the imagery i love the way he constructs shots i love the performances i think that there are very strong performances here but in context of the story and the kind of the nature of it and the message and stuff i just i i don't love it it's not uh, i i don't think it's a story that that grabs me right away i i think it's a i think there are interesting elements this to me is like a film school film it's an interesting film to kind of watch and and look at and see what he's doing with it but uh, for me i just i i don't know i just i struggle with the kind of uh, getting into the story like i never get emotionally connected to it and i get i think that's what i need to really be able to say i love something about it well it's a perfect sort of exemplar in our book of uh movies that are less than the sum of their parts because i agree with you i find uh you know a lot of the work that goes into just sort of constructing the film is much more interesting than what comes out at, at the end of it and uh or or at least i don't i don't even know if interesting is the right word but it's it's certainly um worth noting how hard it is to make movies and particularly how hard it is to make bergman movies the stories of how he is on set uh in terms of his director's experience right that he comes out of theater and so very much treats the 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 experience of being on set like a theater experience there are many rehearsals with all crew and all ca- actors right go walking through moving through each scene uh and and in this case there was a lot more at stake it was largely self-funded and um and and so he had a lot to to sort of earn back and you know figure out if he could get this movie made i you know i i feel like that experience of bergman is an interesting one uh so much uh beyond the experience of of actually watching the movie which just was a lot of work well, let's talk a little bit about cast and and crew as we, yeah. you know, as we move through this. So it's written and directed by Bergman. We've talked a lot about Bergman. Uh, 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 who else are you in love with? Um, well, uh, I mean, at the time, Bergman was in a relationship with Liv Ullman, who's in the film, and I think she's great. I think actually, I think. I feel I I don't know the the history here and and maybe I I shouldn't dig too deep into it but I feel like he had been through I don't know if he had been through a breakup or divorce or something before this that led to uh, led to kind of him writing this he was alone on his little island hut where he lived and um, came up with all of this and and. I don't know if somewhere between there he started seeing Ullman. I'm not exactly sure. But um, anyway, um, I think Liv Ullman is spectacular in the film. I mean, I really enjoy watching her. And I mean, as somebody who's in all these Swedish films at the beginning of the 70s that the Oscars were noticing, mm-hmm. The Emigrants, The New Land, I think that she's just really a fascinating character on screen and does a great job here as kind of the sister in kind of these emotional turmoil moments, um, also having like these passionate uh, desires for this doctor. And we didn't even mention she is in kind of the flashbacks as the mother, which was kind of an interesting choice. Uh, Karen, the other sister played by Ingrid Thulin, I think is a, is another fascinating sort of, uh, uh, portrayal of, a, a complicated person who's dealing with her own little struggles. 
I find her particularly magnetic. I already sort of had my on-screen relationship with Liv Ullman. Like, I knew my experience with her from from Emigrants. Um, but uh, Ingrid Thulin was was new to me, uh, and uh, I, I found her quite enchanting. Um, I, I wish that I had been able to see her m- more happy more often. I mean, you could say that about any of them. <laughs> you don't get to I know. See- a lot of joy That's in the film, fair, right. uh, but it it is pretty interesting. And, and seeing, I, I mean, I think that her performance is 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 strong, right? She, I think there's there are interesting elements of the the way that the sisters are portrayed in coming in and out of the moments of their uh, kind of compassion for each other. Mm-hmm. I find that um, seeing that portrayed to be very interesting. And I, I think that the actresses deliver that quite, quite well. Kari Sylvan is uh, Anna, the, the, um, the nurse maid. And she carries an awful lot of weight in this film. Awful lot of water. You know, we didn't even bring up the whole idea of the the way that Bergman composed some shots with her that resembled kind of a pieta, you know, right. it was a, a very compelling imagery when when Anna would, in order to provide comfort for Agnes, she would like take off one side of her her blouse, revealing a breast, and then kind of get in bed and have have uh, Agnes kind of laying there on her breast, much like. Uh, um, the Virgin Mary. And it was like, I don't know, very interesting kind of uh, relationship they were that they were portraying there. And she hadn't worked with Bergman before, but I was like, you know, I, I thought she did a very good job in kind of delivering this uh, much more um, uh, loving relationship in the film. The only loving relationship yeah, in really. the film, yeah, right? And, and, yeah. and I think that's. Uh, I I found that was that was something I could kind of hang on to was the Pieta uh, symbol. Like I thought, I think that was a that was an interesting way to to show to demonstrate warmth, to demonstrate you know kindness, and and attempt to demonstrate just sort of love and healing. Uh, and so there's a it, it's an interesting segment and um one i found was was nice before the and, end of that first half downturn and an interesting like obviously a an image that people remembered because yeah. 1981 uh, the swedish uh, postal system actually is issued a postage stamp of the scene where she's kind of holding her like that uh, in a series commemorating the history of swedish cinema i didn't catch that that's interesting that they would do that 10 years later that that film had already endeared itself so heavily culturally that they yeah, would make right? a stamp of it. Andy, I wonder, they haven't yet made a stamp of this podcast. <laughs> what what will it take? Do I need to cradle you lovingly? <laughs> I'm sure that would be the moment that people <laughs> choose to commemorate. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Uh, anyhow, those are the those are the the women in the in the film. They're uh, you know stalwarts of Swedish cinema, uh, and and they they carry a lot of weight for Bergman here. Uh-huh. And it's interesting because the men, I think, are largely just a bunch of uh, uncaring, yeah. compassionless uh, people, and they all they all feel very much that way, regardless of you know whether they're dealing with their own emotional strife or are just straight up jerks. Oh, uh, they're jerks. 
Yeah. Pretty much all jerks. Pretty much. Pretty much. Not interested. Yeah. Uh, we talked about uh, Sven Nyquist and the work he did on the camera, uh, working with uh, Bori Lund on makeup, uh, production design, Marek Vosland. Incredible effort to to be able to bring this on screen and not have us all blinded by red. And not bleeding. I mean, that's the problem with red. Yeah. I mean, you look at films even into the 80s and 90s, like the one that always stuck with me was uh, Flatliners, because there would be these moments where the film would go to kind of red when the person is entering kind of that death zone where they're kind of reliving yes. moments or whatever. And the red, especially when you look at it later in like home video or whatever, it just bled all over the place. It was just horrible the way right. that it translated. And it's a very challenging color to capture in large quantities. And so the fact that that uh, Nikvist had to do such drastic uh, tests to make sure that he could capture it the right way with the quantity that Bergman wanted, I think just goes to show that he really put the homework in to make it work. I am stunned to look at our notes here and see there's a little area down at the bottom of our notes that Andy just sort of runs. And it starts with sequels and remakes. And I don't <laughs> usually look at it before we do the show because I just have done my part and I kind of want to... There, there's one bullet and it says yes. To yeah. sequels and remakes. I just had what a chance could you to possibly have to say after <laughs> yes. There is a cries and whispers and what? <laughs> it, you know, there's there's times where you have more time to type things in than others. <laughs> I just wanted to note there to remi remind myself. Yes, I do have to go to this other tab to read about it because I just didn't have time to <laughs> well, not, copy and paste. I'm not making. I'm not casting any doubt. On to your note-taking ability here, Andy. You are an exceptional note-taker. I am just flabbergasted that the answer is yes. It makes perfect sense, Pete. It, this has been adapted for the stage. Of course it has, because it <laughs> oh, feels like a play. It does, and that was a trick answer. Uh, of course it was, yes. In 2010, the Hungarian theater of Kluj... Not sure that already that right. makes sense. <laughs> they dramatized Bergman's story. Um, this... I don't know. It it piqued my curiosity because it said dramatizing Bergman's story and the film's production. Oh, what does that mean? A, it's kind of is cries a, and whispers, but noises <laughs> off. Right? Is it a? <laughs> wow! Right? Now, can you imagine the, the second act? It, it turns the whole theater turns. This and now reveals, you're looking what's behind the scenes. Why Agnes wakes up at the end? <laughs> <laughs> you're supposed to be dead. I had to move. I had to go to the uh, bathroom. I don't know. Itch. <laughs> uh, there was, uh, yeah, there, so the, anyway, they adapted it, and then it has been uh, directed at, in, a, in another adaptation at the Bergman Festival in Sweden's Royal Dramatic Theater, and again, 2011, at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, moving the story to a contemporary setting, reducing the use of red, why, <laughs> and replacing the film's classical music with modern songs, including Janis Jopl Joplin's Crybaby. Janis Joplin is exactly who I thought of when I uh, first watched this movie. I thought more Janis Joplin would actually really bring the point home. <laughs> I hear Bergman said that, too, but couldn't yeah. afford her at the time. He's very into R&B. <laughs> That's what I've heard. Oh, wow. Uh, yes. How to do how to do an award season. Well, this is the big reason we're doing this series. Uh, the Oscars. This film was nominated for Best Picture in 1973. It was nominated with The Sting, 
and A Touch of Class, American Graffiti, and The Exorcist. The Sting, of course, won Best Picture. Um, After having watched all of these films, I have to say, man, uh, a, A Touch of Class feels just so of its time. Like, it just did not resonate at all with me. I would be happy just pulling that one out and picking something else because listen to a few other films that came out in 1973 that didn't get nominated, Pete. Save the Tiger, The Last Detail, Serpico, The Way We Were, The Paper Chase, Paper Moon, Papillon. <laughs> a lot of options in there. Take yeah. a touch of class out. I'd say, hey, maybe take Cries and Whispers out too, but hey, yeah. anyway. Uh, American Graffiti is not one of my favorites, but, you know, I know it has love. Is it best picture worthy, uh, w- especially when looking at some of those other ones? I'm not sure. What is interesting, and this is something we talked about last week when we talked about Z, and certainly we would have talked about in our episode on The Emigrants, uh, the fact that this film was not nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, like Z was, which kind of started to trend with some of the other ones that we'll be talking about later in this particular series. It looks like, for whatever reason, Sweden chose to not put this film up, not submit it. They did not submit a film in 1973, 74, or 75. After The Emigrants in 71 and The New Land in 72, they don't submit another film until 1976. And Is uh, that why this film got a Best Picture nomination? No, I I think honestly it got a best picture nomination because um because of the release, because of the excitement and fervor at the box office for it, which we'll talk about here in just a sec. I, I think that's what kind of led to kind of that it it felt like what people would nominate for best picture at the time. But you don't think there's any any credence to the idea that had Sweden submitted it as a best foreign language film, it would not have gotten a best picture nomination? Maybe. It's so hard to say. I'd like to think that that would be possible. But also another thing is that I don't know Sweden's relationship with Bergman at the time was a little little off because of the way that he uh, asked the Swedish Film Institute for some money, even though, hey, he's Ingmar Bergman, and here he is asking for money. I think some people were miffed that somebody who is a well-known filmmaker is getting money as opposed to some of the up-and-comers. Well, and he's also wildly, like, widely known to have totally slammed the Swedish film industry for, like, a decade. Like, he was, he wasn't a really nice, he wasn't really nice to to, to them for a long time. And he had a few flops before this. And so yeah. I think people were like, you know, let's, let's not bother. I think, the, and it got a U.S. release before it was released in Sweden. So I, I feel mm-hmm. like there's a lot of things that Sweden was maybe saying, you know what, eh, we're not going to push this for you. So there, mm-hmm. um, who knows? But what's interesting, if you look at the films nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, um, they were uh, Francois Truffaut's Day for Night, which won The Pedestrian, the Invitation, Turkish Delight, and The House on Shalush Street. Uh, I also watched all of these just as a way to compare. I would I would personally put Day for Night up as Best Picture over Cries and Whispers. I think it's a much better film. And it's about the film industry. I just feel like there's a lot of stuff going on with that film that I appreciate more than Cries and Whispers. So yeah. it's strange to me that Cries and Whispers does get a Best Picture nomination. Um, uh, it's just, it's peculiar. Um, but anyway, Fascinating. Uh, we'll jump into the numbers here in a sec, because uh, I think that there that might spur this conversation a little further. But um, 
as back at the Oscars, it did win Best Cinematography for Sven Nickvist, uh, nominated for Best Costume Design, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay, but lost all of those along with Best Picture to The Sting. Over at the Golden Globes, it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, but interestingly, it lost to, which I don't think I've seen before, a pair of films that won, which happened to be the other Swedish entries, The Immigrants and the New Land. Go Sweden! <laughs> Locked down tight. But it was very it was very popular in award circles. It just yeah. it was one of those films, you know. All right. So you tease us with the numbers too much, Andy. How'd it do at the box office? Well, like I was saying, this film does have a bit of an interesting story, financially speaking. After several movies that did not do so well and you know, a name that didn't sell too well overseas. Bergman ended up putting 750,000 Swedish krona of his own money into this film, borrowed 2,000 more, and then, like I said, asked the Swedish Film Institute for the remaining 5,500 for his 1.5 million Swedish krona budget. That is about $450,000 at the time, which is about 2.7 million in today's dollars. As I was saying, there was this complaining about getting money from the Swedish Film Institute, which is generally more for kind of beginning filmmakers. So he and his lead actresses and Nickvist agreed to return their salary as loans and then came on board as co-producers. Once he did that um, and got the money and everything... He, he comes to get the film made and then he couldn't find any distributors interested in it, which is just kind of, uh, you know, the, the pain for any filmmaker. You go through all that, getting all the money and then no one wants to distribute it. Lo and behold, the the person who comes to his rescue of all people is Roger Corman. That's right. <laughs> the Roger P. T. Corman. Barnum of the film industry. <laughs> right. He buys the domestic rights for his New World Pictures label, label, and the movie is a huge success. Uh, Corman, as he's always said, uh, is always profited with his films. He profited very handsome, handsomely from this. The film won many accolades. It became very popular. Um, it, Like I said earlier, it premiered in the U.S. first um, because Corman was the first to jump on it for distribution. So it premiered in the U.S. before Sweden, premiered New York December 23rd. 1972, and then it opened in Sweden March 5th, 1973. Corman got a lot of money from this one. It was Bergman's highest-grossing U.S. release in his lifetime. It earned $1.5 million domestically, which is almost $9.2 million in today's dollars, and it earned almost $470,000 in Sweden, or another $2.9 million in today's dollars. That means the film earned just over $12 million in today's dollars, giving it an adjusted profit per finish minute of a bit over $102,000. That's amazing. So doesn't help that it's a funny. short movie, too. So in terms yeah. of your APPFM. Right, exactly. Yeah. But it does uh, help. I, I do love this quote, Bergman, when asked about how much he'd earned from Cries and Whispers. He says, all I know is that it was like playing one-armed bandit. You put a coin in the slot, the wheels start spinning, and suddenly three oranges line up in front of you. Money just gushed out of this machine. <laughs> gushed, Andy. Bergman himself used the word gush. Doesn't seem like something he would say. It does not. Uh, This is a, uh, it, it, you know, we got through it. What what is there (laughs) to say? It's Bergman. It's a tough one. It's uh, emotional. It's devastating. And yeah, we're on the other side and uh, ready to move on to the next one. I can't wait to see how it does over on Flick Chart. 
Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you just, if you want to save yourself some searching, swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flick chart. It'll open up cries and whispers right in the flick chart database. So you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours. I will say cries and whispers. It's an interesting film. Um, I, there's a lot of filmmaking prowess in the film itself. And, you know, sometimes we rank on Flickchart because of the quality of production and what the art is of the film. A lot of times we also rank on emotion and which we'd put on first. And I have a feeling that this film will fall into that latter <laughs> camp quite a bit. I, I guess we'll see. Why, why that setup hit you, why you felt the need for that setup, Andy. I, I'm now well, I'm deeply curious. That's right. First up, we have Cries and Whispers or The Birdcage. Uh, the Birdcage. I will say the birdcage. You don't want to play rock cries and whispers? <laughs> right. Uh, cries and whispers or the brood. <laughs> the brood. I will say the brood. Give me some Cronenberg. Cries and whispers or the Hudsucker proxy. Hey, I'm all about Hudsucker proxy. Hudsucker is a, such a problematic film, it but I would not. watch it over Cries and Whispers. So I will. <laughs> it is. It is. But I'll still pick it. Cries and whispers or the little drummer girl, Diane Keaton. You know what? This is where we draw the line, I think. Is it for you? <laughs> it Diane is for King. me. Okay. I would absolutely watch, uh, because at least this is where that art line, like I've now ticked over to the art side. I would 100% put this on. It's 90 minutes. Get me through the visual, fascinating filmmaking that Bergman is doing here, even if the story's tough. 100% over the the mess of the little okay. drummer girl. All right. You know what? I'm going to give this to you because I, I think ultimately, if we're speaking truth, all I have is I'm on my island and all I have is these two movies. I would probably stare at sand for an hour and a half. <laughs> so I'm going to give this to you. Cries and whispers. All right. Cries and whispers or the best little whorehouse in Texas. I would probably watch uh, whorehouse. Yeah, I, I still am at a point where I'm like, I'd put I, I there's more art in cries and whispers. So I would pick it over best little whorehouse. Ah, you know what? Oh, we've got that fantastic. Uh, there's there's some interesting characters in Best Little Whorehouse. I, I'll pick that one. All you know, right. we've got we've got uh, Dom DeLuise. You know, we've got the the senator. I, I think there's some interesting stuff. There. Great, I'll say that, that great dance hall in the Capitol. That's that was that was great. There's some, some interesting things. Yeah, yeehaw, yeah. yeehaw. Cries and whispers are the Danish girl. Uh, the Danish girl easily for me. I'll say the Danish girl. Cries and Whispers, or The Hound of the Baskervilles, 1939. Little Sherlock Holmes. I'm going to say Hound of the Baskervilles. Okay. Cries and Whispers, or Friday After Next. Friday After Next. <laughs> I will say Cries and Whispers. You know what? <laughs> I'm going to take you to the mat. Uh, okay, here we go. <gasps> One, One, two, two three. three. Scissors. Rock. Cries and Whispers takes it. I tried. Cries and Whispers are dinner for schmucks. <laughs> um, uh, dinner for schmucks. I will say dinner for schmucks because it has a few, like a few perfect comedy moments in it. Yeah, it's okay. not a great film, but I'll still not pick a great it. Film. That it puts is, Cries and Whispers only. Reason. 
It's right, exactly. Uh, 433 out of 463. Not very high on our chart. That's about a 6%, Pete. 6%, 6%. Andy. Mm. Wow. Uh, And this movie, uh, you know, I look at at Flickchart on my own ranking, and this movie has a global ranking of 323. That is much higher than it is on my (laughs) my own Flickchart. And I'm so curious why... I am. I just am so far apart with the masses on this movie. I I know I'm gonna just gonna rain hell. I, I but see, I don't think it's fair to say with the masses. I think to say <laughs> with a particular group of people who really enjoy Bergman. Fair, and that's I mean, fair. Honestly, I think that for Bergman fans and for those people who just love exactly what we're saying with like these people who just love analyzing and and breaking all of this stuff down from the first shot to the last, absolutely, they're going to pick this film because it has that uh, stuff in it for you to go through. Well, absolutely. And I applaud uh, those people who love this film. I really do, um, because... Uh, that's, I, I think that is a, a, I also love people who love crossword puzzles. Um, <laughs> I, I struggled with it and it shows up at a, at a, not a great place, uh, on my list. Oh dear. Where did it, where did it finally end up on yours? Did you beat 6%? It, I did. I did. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't hate this film. I think it's an interesting one. And bless Bergman for making it only 90 minutes. I think that that was a gift. I appreciate that. And so it landed in spot 3301 out of 4466, which is a 26%. So oh, a little bit higher on my That chart. is higher. Um, I, you know, it, it, it fell like a stone, man. Who am I kidding? <laughs> I, it, it was, uh, it ended up at, at 1454 out of 1461. Um, and it was, there was no hard choice, um, for me. And so that's a, that's a zero. That's a zero yeah. percent. It's like so close to the bottom, like it's scraping. Um, so if if I were to go by that algorithm, it should be a zero star over at letterbox.com slash the next reel. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. I mean, I'm with you on the the artfulness of the film. My experience of watching it is exclusively sort of the the whatever joy I get out of it is in is in looking at at the artfulness, the visuals of it. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a two star uh over there and, and not a heart. I didn't I didn't like it. I didn't like my experience watching it. Yeah. I'm not going to watch it again, but I'll give it a two star for for uh, the the movies are hard score. I, I I'm a little more generous uh, because I think there's just so much filmmaking craft in here. I think it is a, a beautifully constructed film. Um, but like you, it's it's really just a challenge for me to watch. I'm at three stars, uh, no heart. Yeah. So All overall, right. that's a two and a half. Right down the road. And, uh, right down the middle of the road. That's where it sits. Yep, that's where it sits. So, so please tell me, Andy, what gift do you have for me next week? Uh, we are taking a big jump. Not the biggest jump. The biggest jump was the first one when we went from 1938 to 1969. This jump we're doing 1973 to 1995. We're going to be looking at Michael Radford's film, uh, The Postman, or as it was called at the time, The Postman, Il Postino. Excellent. Now, uh, are, are you more enthusiastic this week than you were going into last to this this coming week? Very Are you much more so. enthusiastic I, for last I, week than you were coming into this week? I love, uh, I loved the film when I saw it back in '95. Uh, it just totally 
struck all the right notes for me. Also, it uh, it gave me the gift of Pablo Neruda, who I had never uh, heard or read before, and I uh, just totally fell in love with the kind of the the kind of love poems that he does. So uh, I, there's a lot to love about this film. I haven't seen it since '95, so I'm actually really curious to jump back and revisit it. I'm curious too. You know, what we've got mostly you know, we're we're a big ebook family, but one of the only books that we have still on a shelf is a book of Pablo Neruda's love poems given to me and my wife on our wedding day by you. By me? Oh, you look did, at that. You did that. Yeah. So <laughs> so there's that, uh, which is very exciting. So, so I, too, am excited about this. I'm much more uh, optimistic than I was coming into this week. I, I have some downright enthusiasm and excitement about watching this movie again. And uh, so I can't wait to do it. When the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Uh, we uh, were middle of the road or below on this film, so we went straight to the top of we the sure barrel did. for this movie. And uh, there there were some gems floating right in the top. Maybe. I don't and know. And a lot of people love it. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people love it. Had a lot of words to say about it. We picked some, uh, our favorite abbreviated, little, little tiny, tiny doses of love. Yes, indeed. Movie, we but. did. What do you got? I got Bruce K. Paulson, who gave it five stars, and he says, A bizarre Bergman film that I saw when it was released. So glad that I own it. <laughs> well, that's We're awfully glad too, chipper. Bruce. Yes. Thanks for those insightful five-star words. You know, I've got one that I think says, If there was an Ingrid Bergman of reviews, this would be that review. This review is to Amazon as Ingrid Bergman is to movies. How about that. Oh wow! What do you think? This is exciting. I, I, my, my uh, curiosity has been piqued. Well, let's just so you got every everything in here matters. So I will tell you first that this comes from Sylvia Toy Industries, who says my five stars. <laughs> I know, I know. One of my personal top ten on my personal top ten list since it first came out. Sylvia Toy Industries says one of the movies that taught me how to be a grown-up. <laughs> wow. Oh. Wow, Sylvia. Or, or do I say Miss Toy Industries? Miss Toy Industries? <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is rough role model material. Maybe consider... <laughs> maybe consider something else. Um, maybe an Adam Sandler movie or... Uh, I don't know. There, I think there are a lot of sort of uh, low rent, better role model movies than this. I want to know if Sylvia Toy Industries is because of the five star review coming up with a line of toys. Yeah, for cries and whispers, right? Like Maybe. the genital mutilation toy <laughs> with with Karen and her little piece of glass in her hand. Oh, Andy, that's come on. There was a line. <laughs> you just leapt across it. <laughs> There are times where I feel like, you know, what are you going to do? You're setting, setting me up to jump, man. <laughs> I 
I was just going to start with with the poor husband with a little tiny knife sticking out of his gut, and you went straight to genital mutilation toys. Oh, put that on your Instagram, right? Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022. We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.